Have you ever wondered why some people are so immature? You may be thinking, Pastor, you're opening up a big, big can right now because I'm looking at you. But have you ever thought, why are they so immature? Why can't they just wake up? Why can't they just grow up? Why can't they get a grip on something? Why do they people do the things that they do? And then I want to ask you this question. You ever look in the mirror and think, why do I do the same things I continually do? Why is it I can't seem to wake up and get a grip? Why isn't I, well, I haven't grown yet? Why do I look and think, oh, that was so immature? Why did I respond that way? Why was that my reaction? What, what, is that a default go-to that I seem to constantly get at? What is the problem? Why can't it seem like this year or this time in my life is actually further along and better in my growth with the Lord than some of the days I look back on? You ever have those moments when you're looking in the mirror? Or maybe you're maybe not looking in the mirror. Maybe you're driving down the road thinking about the day, thinking about what happened last night at home, thinking about a conversation you may have had. It's problematic, right? And then we get in this point where we start doing the look down and can't believe I reacted that way. And we start living in this just downward motion. Not looking up for the wisdom that we need to find. Not waking up and having our eyes open to the clear message of what Jesus has done through the cross, through His work of grace and what that means for our life. And we look at our life and we say, alright, I see these distractions. I see these decisions. I see this lack of devotion. I see this difficulty. I see this apathy to what God is telling me. And it needs to stop. But I want to tell you that if you try to just make a decision on your own willpower and own bootstraps, you're probably missing the point. But when we open our eyes and say, oh Jesus, that's, that's what you've done. That, that's what that means? And He awakens something in us. Then there's a transformation. And then there's growth. And all of a sudden, we look back and the things that were once as important are not so much anymore. The reactions we once held are not as prevalent anymore. That old way becomes dimmer and dimmer. And God's new way opens up. At least that's the way it's intended. But it's not always the actual practice. It's not always actually what's there. In fact, we're going to continue our series called Awakened in the Letters to Corinthians and see that Paul was looking at the church at Corinth and, and he saw the problem. Like Paul's having this conversation, why are they so immature? And he writes to them. Because writing a letter to an immature person seems like the most mature thing to do, right? Well, Paul is going to write to them, but he's going to do it in compassion and grace and love. And really, in humble attitude, we'll see that next week as we look some more at Paul. But this week, I want to ask you to stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. We're going to be in the letter, the first letter to Corinthians. And uh, if you are using our Pew Bible, that's in page 1012. If you don't have a Bible and would like a copy of the written Word, 
You know what our invitation is? Take that one right there in front of you in the pew. We can gladly fill it with another because we want to get the Bible in people's hands and hearts. But today we're going to open up to this passage, chapter 3, um, and look at the first nine verses. And this is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready yet for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to hear this letter written by Your servant, inspired by Your Holy Spirit, and preserved for Your saints today to know that You are waking us up to hear from You. May we respond with an attitude and a heart of worship that hears, receives, trusts, and obeys. And God, show us what that means in Your great grace. Thank You for what You've done. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Now, when you're trying to understand a particular text of Scripture, whenever you're in a Bible study or whenever you're in a worship gathering or you're even at home and you're trying to read along, there's some things that are pretty important to get if we're going to really understand what is being written, what is being declared to us. We've got to look at three things majorly. We need to look at the audience, who is writing. Here we see it's the Apostle Paul, this man who was transformed by the grace of Jesus. He was a very religious and zealous person before he met the living Jesus, but he was zealous in the wrong direction. So zealous that he was looking to dismantle any other faith, including Christianity. But Jesus, whenever he encountered Paul, he didn't go, zip, you're done. He actually lavished his grace and shows that Jesus can save anybody, anywhere, any way he desires. And he chose to save Paul. And Paul knew that he had received the grace of Jesus. And he responded in faith. And his life completely took a different direction. And he was zealous for the Lord, but not in an arrogant, conceited way, but in a very humble and compassionate way. He's writing to this church in the city of Corinth, which is in this little landmass between what we call today modern-day Macedonia and, and Greece, that people would ship their, their trade items through. And it was a very hustling and bustling city. Um, it was also a very uh, uh, naughty place. Um, people in the ancient days, when they write about Corinth, a person that's been to Corinth probably needs to bathe and be you know, uh, taken away from their defilement because if they stayed in Corinth very long, Corinth might have rubbed up on them. Um, it had some very, very uh, uh, hanky-panky issues going on, if you will. So they had this environment. 
And Paul is writing to this church that he founded, uh, he had initiated, he had planted, if you will. It wasn't that Paul was like, oh, I'm the best, this kind of thing, and you're my, I'm your founder. But he's saying, I lovingly cared and gave the gospel to you, and, and this church was built in this city, but something is going on. So Paul's writing to this church at Corinth that is struggling. I mean, they are struggling with all kinds of issues. And not just issues that we would say, that's issues from the ancient days. Issues we'd be familiar with today. People that are very lackadaisical in their devotion. Very apathetic to their knowledge of Scripture. Very um, uh, distracted in their decisions. That race really are pointing and saying, hey, life is about me and not really about what Jesus wants for me. Sounds kind of familiar. Very current. But that is what is going on. And what Paul is writing is saying, I want you to see the rich grace that Jesus has extended towards you, the life that He has gracefully given to you, and how that has ramifications that change everything. That because of the Gospel, because of what Jesus does to wake us up to His grace, it changes everything about us, including how we grow including the direction we grow, including how we are maturing. Now the question comes up though, is how come when someone just places their faith in Jesus, they don't just automatically know everything about the Bible? Why isn't it there? Like now I know all things. I can quote all Scripture now. Why is that that this doesn't happen? Well, Jesus gives us the Gospel through His servants, And everything in life is thus built upon that. And it takes time to wrap our heads around it. As we talked about last week, when we talked about how Paul was writing about spiritual wisdom, the need for spiritual wisdom, which ties into the need for spiritual maturity. You can't really grow into maturity unless you have wisdom. But wisdom comes in two forms of instruction. First, the basic gospel, which is the plain, blunt message about Christianity based on Christ and the cross. And anything else we try to learn about faith needs to be filtered through That, everything, anything else must be filtered through that. If it isn't, it's filtered through some other personality. It's filtered through some other interpretation. And it can leave us wanting more or wanting less. When we see it filtered through the Gospel, we see the wisdom from God and we see how it helps us grow into maturity. But obviously there are problems, right? I asked you a minute ago to just have a little personal self-examination whenever you've looked around and thought, man, why aren't people so, why aren't people more mature than I expect them to be? Or why didn't they respond the way I expected them to respond? Or when we look in the mirror and think, I could have been better at that. Obviously, there's a problem. And so we're going to look at the challenges that Scripture present to the church about our moving towards spiritual maturity. What's the first challenge? The first challenge, according to Paul in the first two verses, is that we must understand that There is spiritual maturity, but there is also the problem of spiritual immaturity. And that spiritual immaturity stems from a source. It stems from a source. It has a point of origin. And what are these points of origin that Paul talks about here? Well, he says the first thing is that I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. People of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, Paul talks about in the last chapter, 
By the way, this is a letter. It wasn't written in chapters and verses. That's one reason it's good to read the, uh, when you're reading one of these letters, kind of read the entirety of it. The little numbers and stuff are good for us to find where we're looking for, but um, generally it can be distracting when we're trying to read for the entirety of what the message is. But in last week we talked about how Paul was talking about that there are going to be people who will receive the message of God's wisdom, God's grace, and it will transform them and they will be able to understand further. These are people who have been given a a new creation. They are made a new creation through Christ. They have a new mind. Their, their mind is constantly being renewed by Jesus. And then there are those that are living just according to the flesh. They're just doing the normal things that normal human beings do. doesn't mean they're base and only act like animals. That's not what it's talking about. But their focus is on just worldly things. And they might like to sprinkle a little morality and a little spirituality every now and then, but all of that is subjective. It only comes in their time of need or in their time of judgment. And don't get, me, give me, don't get me wrong, every single human being bases and uses judgment on some things, especially morality. But a person without the Spirit, Paul says, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. And Paul makes that very clear. And then he goes on and says, but here's the thing about you Corinthians, you church that I love. I have given you the gospel and I've pretty much focused on that because you're not getting past that. You're living as if the gospel makes no difference and everything else of the flesh matters more. That when it comes to the earthly or the eternal, the earthly has a greater foundation for your life than the eternal. And that is never the way that Christ intended us to live. Even if you go back to the Gospels, Jesus' focus was not on the earthly. He was focused on how the kingdom of God will transform how we live in the earthly. That the eternal makes a difference on the earthly. Why do Christians, though, still struggle with the flesh? What are some reasons? Because you may be thinking, well, pastor, I still struggle. I still have problems. Man, I get jealous sometimes. I think about doing things. I, I, I tell lies. Uh, sometimes I'm a gossiper and a backbiter. Well, I, I deal with those things. I, I blow up on people. I slam doors. That's a little looking back on myself here. Why is it that we as Christians still struggle in this world? Well, there's a few reasons why Christians will still struggle in this world. Not might will. It's because the enticements of temptations do not flee all at once. And every one of you in here, you might have a temptation that might be similar to someone else, but most of you have a very specific temptation. And they can be different from someone else as well. But here's the thing. All of us are tempted, but all of us are given the choice on how we respond to that temptation. No matter what your temptation is, you may be tempted in all kinds of things. And there's some things that you think people that are tempted in that way, that's the most evil thing. I had a conversation this week and someone says, well, if someone's tempted with homosexuality, they're just going to bust hell wide open. Let me be clear here, church, just in case you may have that sentiment and that feeling. It is not homosexuality that sends someone straight to hell. It is the fact that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that means without Jesus, 
every one of us are going to bust hell wide open. So we need to be careful with judgments. People are going to deal with temptations. But how we respond to them is between us and the Lord. And the Lord has given us the ability to stand up and be faithful amidst temptation. But as Christians, we will struggle because temptations, just because we've trusted Jesus, doesn't mean they Think of the apostles. They had trusted Jesus. They had left everything to follow Him. And when the temptation to be fearful and run away from soldiers who were taking Jesus away to be crucified, what did they do? They ran away. They'd been with Jesus for three and a half years. They'd seen Him go, Hey, storm, shut up. And it happened. And the temptation to flee was still there. And they yielded, unfortunately. But there's reasons why Christians still struggle with the flesh. They still struggle with flesh because the fierce battles are not done. We never get a po- to a point this side of, of heaven where we say, you know what? Spiritual warfare is done with me. You're always going to be battling those elements. You're always going to be battling the world around you still being fallen. When you turn on the news, guess what? There's going to be bad news. Because you live in a fallen world. And that's going to cause us to worry and doubt and, and sometimes look at different philosophies. We're going to still be tempted and struggle with the flesh because the enemy still garners for attention. Jesus may be your Lord and Savior, but it doesn't mean the enemy's not like, hey, look at me. I'm going to do a little song and dance for you. I've got your attention now. And because the old ways are still habits that need to be broken. That's some reason struggle is still flesh because habits need to be broken. And to break habits takes time. Ask anybody that's ever quit smoking a cigarette. Habits take time to break. Another one I'll add in there. One reason Christians still struggle is because right now we still only see dimly. It is only when we get to heaven that Jesus says that we won't that we will see in the full. For now we only see in part, but then we will see in the full. Why do Christians still struggle with flesh? These reasons. So if we want to understand why spiritual immaturity happens, we need to go back and say it has a source. It's not just there. It comes from a reason. Part of that is being people of the flesh, remaining as people of the flesh. The next is the results stem from not being prepared for growth. Paul says that I gave you milk, not solid food, since you were not yet ready for it. In fact, you were still not ready. They weren't ready for growth. They weren't ready to take it. That's a part of it because growth says, you know what? I'm a seed. God, plant me wherever you want. It's not saying, well, I'd rather take that ground over that ground or that place over that place or I want to be this type of bush rather than this type of bush or I want to produce this type of fruit or this type of fruit. It's that, God, you're the farmer. You can look and see who I am because you made me. Plant me where you want and grow me the way I need to be grown. Whenever we try to grow things, we, remember, we are reminded that growth, anybody that's done gardening, I am not a gardener, by the way, but this I do know because my grandparents did, um, it is that growth takes ground being cultivated. You know, it's hard to plant anything in red clay dirt in Mississippi. It is hard. It doesn't grow very well. But you put it in good black topsoil, Man, you could see some awesome things flourish. Growth takes a seed being planted. You know, it doesn't just say, well, there's dirt. There's going to be something growing. Yeah, weeds. 
But if you want what you want to grow, you got to plant the right seeds. It takes getting rooted. The sprout has to get rooted in order to grow well. It takes the seedling being nourished by sunlight and water. It takes the plant being pruned for productivity. It takes the, the atmosphere around it being weeded. It takes the plant actually producing fruit to be useful. It takes the plant reproducing other plants to actually be continual. And all these are a reminder that growth takes time. But are we ready for it? Paul says, I was there with you. And I gave you the solid milk, the, the, I mean the milk, but I wanted to give you the solid food, but you weren't ready for it, and you're still not ready for it. This is years down the road, and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm a thousand miles across the sea, and this is what I'm hearing. You're still not ready. Growth takes time, but man, that's taken forever with you guys. I wonder what would happen if someone were able to have that kind of visual on my life and your life. Over the long period of time that we've placed our faith in Jesus, what would it look like? I'm going to tell you what I would say. Don't look at me. That's exactly what I would say. If if someone was, and here's the thing, I'm glad none of you can, but Jesus does. Jesus does. Since His eyes perpetually look upon those who have trusted in Him are called by His name. Paul says that you want to be mature and the goal is towards maturity, but you've got to understand that if you're going to get there, you've got to, you've got to know the, the problems that are going to come in your way. Because if you don't deal with the problems, you're never going to get to the product. Challenge number two, you need to understand that spiritual maturity is not some spontaneous event, but it's a serious exercise. It's not some spontaneous event. It is a serious exercise. And the problem that we're going to face when we look at this this text is that Paul was saying, you are still worldly since there is envy and strife among you. You, Are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? When someone starts bringing up names, that's how you're acting. Paul's saying, you know, if you're going to be ready for real food and, and growth and maturity, I want you to understand it's going to take time and it's not just going to happen all at once. It's a serious exercise. When I was out west um, for my summer mission experience whenever I was in college, it was interesting to me some of the homes I would go to. There was only one Southern Baptist church for the entire Lake Tahoe area. Um, and uh, so people came from all around the lake to this church, and they pretty much did it once a week. And they spent the whole day there because, well, traveling the rest of the week on top of jobs, getting to the part of the lake was not always easy. But I would sometimes go to their homes, and some of the people there, it was very interesting how their philosophy of life was. Um, sometimes it was very minimalistic uh, compared to what I'd grown up with, but also it was, it was very firm. I'm not saying it was always the right way to live, but they were always talking about how I, I don't have this, I don't have a TV because of this, I, I don't go to the movies because of this, and, and these kind of things. And, and I'm not knocking, I, I'm actually blown away by their, their diligence and, and their desire to please the Lord. But one of the things I noted was that they didn't even want a hint of dilution. 
like something to dilute their, their faith. But here's the thing that I see according to Scripture. Yes, we can get diluted by little bitty things here and there, but the real problem with spiritual maturity is not the dilution, it's the domination. It's saying, God, I know You want control over my life, and I know You have a plan for the growth in my life, but I don't really want You to have lordship over my life. I would rather be dominated by this over here. I'd rather be dominated by that over there. See, the dilution would have at least been like, God, I am trying my hardest to follow You, but these things, they keep happening, and and I'm sorry, I'm repentant, and that kind of thing. But to have the attitude of domination was to be like, you know what, it's just going to happen because, well, I'd prefer it. And what you yield to is, is how you're going to grow. In my household, I have this plant that sits by our sink and, and it kind of leans over towards the right. You know why it's doing that? It's trying to get to the sunlight. It's kind of growing towards that direction. It's, it's yielding towards what will provide it growth. In our life, in our faith, we need to understand that what we yield to is going to provide the growth. And there's going to be evidence of this, of whether we're looking for one day Jesus to pop out of the sky and all of a sudden there'll be this spontaneous event where we're, ta-da, mature, or whether we're living a life as a serious exercise. The evidence of this is through our relationships with one another. The relationships with the church, relationships with the world around us, but Paul just... He just says, you can see so just in the church itself. Somewhere to hold a magnifying glass, you can look at it with what's going on in Corinth. He says this, for whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere human beings? What then is Paul and what is Apollos? They are servants through whom you believe, and each has a role the Lord has given. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. Paul's saying, I see the relationship you're having with one another in the church. And it tells me about something about your relationship with God and what really has control, what really has lordship over your life. There's evidence of what you submit to. William Barclay says you can tell what a man's relationship with God is by looking at his relationships with his fellow man. He would go on to say if a man is at odds with his fellow man, if he is quarrelsome, competitive, argumentative, troublemaking creature, he may be a diligent church attender. He might even hold a church office bearer, but he is not certainly living as a man of God. But if a man is at peace with his fellow man, if his relationships with his fellow man are marked by love and unity and concord with through Christ, then that man is demonstrating the grace that resides within him as a man of God. For if a man, once again, is distant from his fellow man, it is good proof that he may be distant from the God who loves him. And if he is divided against his fellow man, there is a good chance he is divided with God at the moment. If he loves God, there will also be a love for his fellow man. Paul's saying this maturity, this this immaturity, that you're wanting to just be there, it's going to take exercising and getting through some of this junk. You know, I, I, I want one day, it would be awesome just to wake up and take off my glasses. I've got 20-20 visions. I've got biceps bigger than my, my garbanzo head. You know, I can bench 350 pounds. i got, you know, iron board abs. My wife's like, yeah, that'd be nice too. And, um, you know, 
It'd be nice for that to happen. But it's not going to be a spontaneous event. It's, it's going to take serious exercise. And part of that exercise is it's going to take getting rid of the junk. You know, my little love for Ben and Jerry's pints is going to have to probably disappear. I'm going to have to deal with that. It's going to have to get serious. If people were to, a nutritionist were to go look at my refrigerator and the stuff that I buy, they'd probably be like, uh, yeah, I kind of see your problem. You can't exercise a bad, over a bad habit. You can't out exercise a bad, a bad eating habit, bad diet. And Paul says, if you're going to deal with this and you're going to get mature, you're going to have to deal with an exercise here. You're going to have to get rid of the proof that I'm seeing of your predicament. What's this proof of the predicament among believers in the church at Corinth? Well, they're struggling with party spirit. I'm for this guy. I'm for this guy. Well, if you're for that guy, I can't be for you because you're for that guy. I'm for this guy. It was strife due to envy. There was jealousy. Well, this person has this title. Well, this person knows this person. Well, this person struggles with this sin. Well, I guess my sin's not as big a deal because of that sin. There were factions. They were divided. They weren't a unified group. There were divisions. Paul's saying if you're going to deal with this, it's not just going to be one day and there's automatically magic peace in the church at Corinth. It's going to take looking to God who holds the big picture and say, God, we repent, we trust You, we're following You, we're coming alongside one another together in a life that says we are living acts of worship. We are brothers and sisters after You. Paul says when you view the folly of these actions and glorifying the human leader here and now versus God's big picture, he gives us the, the illustration of a garden. He says here's the thing, whenever you start elevating mere earthly leaders and, and putting them in, in, in greater authority than where God holds in your life, then you're missing out. And if you do this within the church, you need to understand that, yes, yeah, somebody might have planted the seed and somebody might have watered, but neither of these persons could ever claim the presence that they're in charge because it is only God who gave the growth. And that power belongs to Him and Him alone. You always have to remember that God does use human instruments to bring the message to us with truth and love, just as He was using Paul in this moment. But it is only He alone that is to be held dear as the one who awakens the heart to the message of Christ and the cross. He alone created the heart. He alone can recreate a heart. He alone can draw a heart to repentance. We need to understand that this is not going to be something that's just going to be a spontaneous event. It's going to take a serious exercise to really think and pray God, what is it you require of me? What is it I need to yield to so that I can grow? Challenge number three, understand that spiritual growth is to gear us for gospel service. You look at verses 5 to now, and when he talks about his comparison, Paul's saying, who, who, is, who am I? Who is Paul? What is Apollos? All these are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role God has given. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And what you need to understand there is Paul understands his place. He understands Apollos' place. But he's letting the church know you need to understand your place. That what is the whole thing that spiritual growth is meant to do? It is meant to gear you in the right way towards gospel service. That your life would be about 
planting. It would be about watering. It would be about seeding. And it would be about utter dependence on God to bring the growth, but you to fulfill your role. I was reading something this week about Southern Baptists. By the way, if you didn't know this, you know, I know you're in Michigan, but you're in a Southern Baptist um, affiliated church. And they were talking about Southern Baptist house. Southern Baptists love to celebrate the harvest. We like to see souls saved. People walk the aisle. Right? We love being celebrating that. He says the problem with Southern Baptists in America, generally, is that they are expecting a harvest in unseated fields. They're expecting to celebrate Sunday after Sunday. I've been praying when I come in the door that someone will get saved, but I haven't worked in the fields during the week. We have to understand our role and to be those that plant, to be those that water, to be those that are seeding, and be those in prayer saying, God, we're doing the work that You know You're requiring us to do, and we're just praying for You to bring Your life, Your grace, Your truth, Your love to this person. I want to see Him saved. But I'm not just saying, I want to see him saved, but I'm willing to do nothing about it. Use me, gear me for my spiritual growth to your gospel service. We understand that the challenge is going to move us to some work in bringing the glory and the grace and the goodness and the gospel of God to others. And here's the fourth challenge. The fourth challenge is this. It's the same as last week's last challenge. That spiritual maturity will make us and move us to be more like Jesus. If your spiritual growth, as you measuring it, is not making you to mirror the image of the Son and live according to His way and His life and His declarations, you're growing in the wrong way. If that's the advice you're taking and it's making you act and live and speak less like Jesus, that's a weed. It's not helping you grow. It's not helping you mature. Because spiritual maturity is going to point us to move, make us and move us to be more like Jesus. It's going to point us to everything, filter it through the gospel. That this Jesus, He's God. He's all the holiness and power and almightiness of God. And in all that, as He sees the world, He sees our sin, the terrible offensiveness of everyone's sin, not certain people's sins, every one of us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But He loves us so much and He's so holy and capable to do mighty things. And he says, yeah, I'm going to do what they need. I'm going to go myself. And I'm going to die in their place for them. I'm going to demonstrate that kind of love. Not so they just get religious, but so they'll find what righteousness looks through, like through a relationship with me. And I'm going to put before them the responsibility that what they need to do is not a whole lot of holy acts of attending certain meetings or giving a certain amount, but trusting in what I alone have completed on the cross for them. And when they trust me, I will give them eternity with me. I will transform their destination. The direction they're already headed is towards hell, but because of me, when they trust in me, I will take them and keep them with me in heaven on that day when they face death. But I will also transform the very life they lived here on earth now. 
You see, spiritual maturity is going to make us move us to be more like Jesus. It's going to remind us that people need to see His grace, gospel, and glory above all else. And they need to see it in our lives, and they need to hear it from our lips, and they need to feel it with our love. That's what spiritual maturity looks like. There are problems to get there, but there's a product that yields that's better than we could ever imagine. But that's our aim. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that in this moment when we get to respond to who you are, that that is exactly what we would do, that you've given us this invitation to hear from you. So open our ears, open our eyes, that we might see, trust, and obey. In Jesus' name we pray.